The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. P Nate, Elder P, AJ, Dave, Garage Mahal. How you guys AJ. doing? AJ. Like once he just called him AJ. I, and I, I was felt like, like that was going to stick too. So Air Jordan becomes AJ. So eventually you're going to have a nickname that so doesn't reflect your yes. actual name that you'll have to like bring people down the trail of like, well, it was this and then it evolved to this and then it evolved to this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how, I feel how like it there's works. an office reference there, isn't there? With like Daryl and Michael, isn't there an Office reference where I don't know? We don't watch The Office oh, Center. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I yeah, love I'm just The Office. Kidding. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. It's a great show. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. I got nothing on that one though, and I I, I am an Office fan. So <gasps> with AJ? No, Office? no, not with AJ, but like just a nickname that general? spirals from one thing. I'm pretty sure Michael has something for Daryl. Anyways, that's unrelated, but. Well, we're doing well. We're on a buddy trail and we don't even remember what we're about to say. So Who are um, we? we are the Rebels. We are part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. We're on the Canadian side of it. So download the app. It's probably the best place for you to be listening to us. If you're on a podcast catcher of any kind, you can listen to us there as well. But make sure you check out the other uh, stuff going on in the uh, Canadian network. I just remembered it was the Mitta Rogers Oh, yes. Philbin. Yeah. And then that whole thing. Oh, okay. I just it. wanted to yeah, yeah. redeem no, myself that's, that's there. Good. That, that's that good. was a thing. Because you, you know, there's some listener who's like a big, you know, office fan yes. just tearing their hair out. It's like, I can't believe he doesn't remember. Yeah. 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 So we are in the middle of this series, Paradigm Shifts in Faith. I don't know how long it's going to keep going, I guess, until we run out of paradigm shifts. But as we were just saying today, there's lots, there was stuff that we weren't even going to talk about today that, that we were talking about it, in terms of. It, it's going to go until we actually tick people off because so yeah. far like we've tried and everybody seems generally happy with everything we're I know saying. I couldn't believe that the the one where we talked about patriarchy in the church was received as well as it was like I got and less hate women, mail that week like, than I normally do yeah <laughs> like it's been the girls who have been like I was listening to it and like I've had a couple of people I won't say their names come in and be like I really loved it. My husband didn't like it. And I was just like, <laughs> Oh wow. What? Like this it feels weird. But I think it's cause it shames them a little bit. Uh, but I was like, that's interesting. But I was like, that's funny. Well, it's, um, it's just interesting how talking to some of the women in our small group, it's like, that's kind of the, what they want. Like right. the, the yearning that yeah. godly women have is for that as much it, as our culture tries like to they, say yeah, otherwise. It's created to be in that You'd way. Say, yeah. yeah. Almost, one might say. Almost like creational norms. <laughs> They're rebelling against creational norms to see it any other way. <laughs> Okay, so last week we talked about the Divine Council. I got some feedback from that, actually. I had, I had uh, a few people who 
were like, this is blowing my mind and I'm not sure if I'm going to stop listening to you guys or start listening more intently. So, so we'll see how that turns out. But I also had a few people just like, obviously who have read Michael Heiser and just like, I, I never hear this talked about in Christian circles. So thanks for talking about it. So that, I think that's good. And honestly, I would just say like, I get for those of you who it was just totally new to, yeah, we had that feeling too, where it's just like, I've been in the church for a while and haven't seen this stuff. So dig into the scriptures. It, it's there. Read some Heiser. Read Spine of Scripture by Nontenant and Forgotten Heavens, edited by Doug Wilson. So there's lots of good stuff. Today we're going to talk about, I guess, something that probably flows from what we've already talked about. Some of the stuff that we were thinking through was sort of, remember when you were a kid, they especially had it in restaurants where there the little um, dots that you would connect and you'd have to go from like one to two to three to four and you'd eventually it'd, it'd make a picture. Yeah, and I was able to complete the picture. Like, yeah, like. and so it's kind of like that, whereas like what we're, I think, going to talk about today is sort of like, like the picture that emerges when you start connecting a bunch of dots. Mm. And so I don't know how else to say it other than to say we're going to kind of talk about kingdom theology or, I guess, a more robust view of the gospel. But I think we'll start it off by saying something spicy, like where the paradigm shift comes in is the idea that preaching atonement is not enough. And this kind of comes from a book that we read called The Spine of Scripture by uh, uh, Dominic Nontenet. And he said something that the first time I read it, I actually was like, hold the phone. Is this book going in a direction I can't follow? You, you geeked out hard is yeah. when you f- first time you read it. Like this is a behind the scenes P8 lifing stuff. Um, when he gets excited about something, all of a sudden that's when you get the text. So like, <laughs> that is like, very true. Like, is here's very a text. True. Here's a thought. And here's where my mind is going. And you need to read the book. Like, so like when you get that text, you know, he's like, geeked yeah, out on that, something. that was when I bought you guys each a copy of this book actually is when I read this line. And so the line was, we preach atonement at the expense of enthronement, or you could say it positively. We ought to preach enthronement over atonement. We're poking at a sacred cow here, yeah, right? Because calling yeah. you a heretic, right? Yeah. Now. So penal substitutionary atonement, we always think of as sort of the heart of the gospel. And I'm saying that penal substitutionary atonement is not enough. It's an aspect of the gospel, but it's not all of the gospel. So, all right, we have to preach enthronement, not atonement. Riff off that. What do we mean by that, Jordan? So. One of the things that I've been blessed to be able to be a part of for a number of years is like street evangelism, been thankful to share the gospel with a lot of people. And the way that I was taught to do that, which is to tell somebody that they have sinned, they've transgressed God's law, and that Jesus came to pay for their sin, which all that is true, yeah. right? All of that is and true. Glorious and beautiful. And, and that is, the knowledge of that is sufficient to redeem a person, change their heart, change their mind. But what we're putting forward is that the gospel is more than just an individual's redemption. It's actually Jesus came not to just redeem individual sinners, but he came to redeem the universe, the cosmos. His death is far more significant than just our individual salvation, but he's reconciling everything in heaven and on earth to himself. So we're saying that King Jesus, his death is far more significant, and him as the King of kings and Lord of lords... He's came to do something far greater than just our Save individual, individual sinners. sinners. So that's where, yes, one can be saved with the knowledge of Christ's blood covering for their sin, but what we're putting forward is that it is far greater than just that. And that's where we get, I think, in the issue of lordship salvation, and that's where what we're talking about is, is how one can understand the sovereignty of God, the lordship of Jesus, and how it's not just... Yeah, like me and my personal piety, me and my 
personal walk with Jesus, it's like, it's not just about being saved, but it's saved for what purpose, right? The atonement is enough to save us. It's enough for salvation. That's the means to the end of the whole gospel. The atonement is the means that God is using to accomplish a bigger purpose that isn't specifically just the redemptions of sinners. It's the reclamation of God's world, of the cosmos. What he created that he had dominion over, he uses the atonement to reclaim the prize that he came for. And it's, it's funny, like, once the paradigm shift in, in your head, you start reading the gospel. So I'm going through in my devotions, one of the books that I'm going through right now is Matthew. I've got a new Bible, so I have to go through all the key books again. It's funny, like, John the Baptist is the first, the first, like, is like, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus is like, before the atonement has actually happened, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't taken the wrath. That's right. He's preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the, I, the question that I think, if you're disagreeing with what we're saying, you have to answer is, what was the gospel that the disciples were sent out to proclaim because the atonement hadn't happened yet. That's right. So what are they out proclaiming and testifying to? They were healing, but they were they were testifying that the kingdom of God has come, which means that the atonement can't be the whole gospel. It has to be a part of the gospel. And I think that's the paradigm shift in our brain that it's like, it's a massively important part. You could even say it's the most important part, but it's only a part. Right. What I think changes in, in your mind is the purpose and the scope of the gospel. So we have this kind of on the heels of the sort of Billy Graham crusade era of preach an atonement gospel and push people to a decision time, whether that's an altar call or praying a prayer, and you're making Christ's death on the cross of value to save individual sinners, to give them their sort of ticket to heaven. And then it has no value beyond the salvation of individual sinners. Whereas what we're saying is that the gospel is actually good news for the entire world, for the entire created order, because it reaches past individual sinners, and it's something bigger and greater than individual salvation. Just kind of riffing off what you were saying there, so Mark opens up his gospel, and he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes through and he talks about John the Baptist, right, the forerunner, right, the herald of the king who would come to proclaim the arrival of a new king. But that word itself, gospel, is so thick and rich. You know, you say this often, Chris, when talking about the political nature of the phrase, Jesus is Lord. You often remind people that when we say Jesus is Lord, that's a political statement because it meant Caesar is not, right? You, in order to understand the scope of the phrase Jesus is Lord, you have to understand that part of the propaganda machine of, of first century Roman world was to say Caesar is Lord, and actually to say Caesar is Lord while pinching your incense to him, pledging your allegiance to the Roman Empire. Well, the language of the New Testament is all borrowing from Rome, right? And so this word gospel was actually a word that was part of, again, the, the Roman propaganda machine. It was a word that actually meant the era of a new king who was ascending to the throne, and the gospel was the good news of this new king's ascension to the throne and what it meant for his subjects. So even that word gospel, if we understand the context of it, actually helps us understand that the gospel is about more than your individual reckoning with the atonement. It's about the understanding that there's a new king on the throne which ushers in a new era of human existence, and human existence because he's the eternal king sitting on the eternal throne that was promised to David. 
kind of coming off of that, you mentioned, Jordan, that this is uh, actually, I guess before we go there, let's let's dig into that a little bit in terms of just the New Testament's use of language. Oftentimes in Colossians, we, we have a tendency sometimes in the epistles to kind of chop things up. And many people would probably know that Colossians like 15 to 20, you just preached on this, Jordan, not that long ago, is sort of the, the Christology, right? The, the rich Christology of the New Testament. And I just want to kind of read it in its context, because I think you see the grand scope of the gospel in this, I think. Starting in verse 11, "...may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light." He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." So you see this grand scope. It it involves everything in heaven and earth, all things being reconciled to God in Christ, and it starts with this transfer of kingdoms. So what comes out of this view of the gospel is seeing the world in a sort of dichotomy, right? Seeing everything as it relates to there are two kingdoms in the world. Now, what we're not talking about is radical two-kingdom theology. What we're talking about here is that there's no neutrality, Everything on earth was under the jurisdiction of the evil one, but is now under the authority of King Jesus. And so the whole gospel is about the realization of the authority of King Jesus over the entirety of the cosmos. Is that fair? Absolutely. I think that's why the writer of Hebrews brings up, he's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. I can never say the word. My small group's laughing right now because I did that on Monday too. But the idea is like, what does that mean? Is that as a high priest who is also king? And right, and right. so like we see that through scripture, like that generally those offices have been separated, but in Christ they're they're there are actually great punishments for kings who would operate as priests. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We see we see one was gets swallowed up, one gets yep. uh, destroyed. Yep. But like we see them when they're together in Christ. That's the way the the author of Hebrews is saying he's above all the angels and he's the high king and priest in this order. Um, because he's bringing all things together. It's not just he's our representation of God, he's also king of the universe, king of the cosmos. Right. Yeah, so the other place I want to go is in Philippians, where it talks about him bestowing on Christ a name that is above every other name. So Philippians chapter 2, 
right? So this starts with Christ's humility, not not having equality with God as something uh, that he needed to cling to. It says in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has ex- ex- highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What's interesting about that, and you see Peter actually pick up on the same language, so I think Paul is borrowing this from what he saw Peter doing in the early book of Acts, and maybe we'll go there as well when we kind of talk about the application of this and preaching the gospel, but Paul is literally pulling from the coronation text of the Caesars. Mm -hmm. So all of this is language that would be talked about in terms of the Caesar who's becoming the emperor of the Roman Empire, and they give the name, right? So Caesar Augustus, there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. You see that Peter talks about that in, I think it's Acts chapter 4, and it's this bestowing upon him a name that is above every other name. Well, the, the Romans actually use that, say that the name Caesar, so now it goes from Augustus, Augustus becomes Caesar Augustus. It's bestowing that name that is above every other name, and to the Caesar all must bow the knee and, and confess with their mouths that Caesar is Lord. And so Paul's actually pulling all of this language. Again, Again, what you miss in context is that Rome believed that it was like the final empire in, in world history. It believed that it was the great savior, the great unifying savior. In fact, Christ did all of his ministry during the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that was established by Rome's like sort of conquering arm. So when you have, like in Matthew 24, when he talks about, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, to his disciples who grew up in an era of Pax Romana, that actually sounds foreign because they didn't understand war at that time because they lived in a time of relative peace. But I just say that to say it's it's central to the understanding of what the apostles were proclaiming, what Christ himself was proclaiming, to understand the propaganda machine of Rome, that Rome really did believe that it was going to stretch its kingdom across the globe and this isn't just pulling from their propaganda machine. You have to remember that in God's sovereignty, he ordained, even prophesied, that he would send his Messiah to come during the time of that fourth kingdom, according to Daniel, during the Roman Empire, in order to smash the empires of the earth and set up an everlasting kingdom. And so what you see in the gospel, and, and you can see it in the book of Mark, I know that because I'm preaching through it, but you see it in Matthew as well, you see it in the book of Acts, that wherever it's described that Jesus or his disciples went, they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It's not just the gospel of atonement, not the gospel of the sinner's prayer, it's not the gospel of individual salvation, it's the gospel of the kingdom. It's this idea that stone that was cut out not by human hands is becoming a mountain that's filling the whole earth. That kingdom is now here and it's going to spread and it's going to conquer. So how does understanding that change the way that we share the gospel? That's not a rhetorical question you guys can <laughs> yeah. uh, You guys go out more frequently than I do on the Thursday nights. How has that changed the way that you share the gospel? I'll put it this way. It changes it from begging somebody to join the kingdom like mm. you should you should try Jesus out not that I would ever use those words right. but the idea that I'm trying to convince somebody to repent and become a Christian to just declaration of that this is the king yeah these are the we we make the joke all the time the terms of surrender these are the king's terms for you to be a, a citizen in his kingdom and he has rightful authority of this realm and this in this cosmos so it, it changes the idea in terms of like one of just like 
it isn't try Jesus out kind of thing. I don't know the right word that I'm, I'm looking for there, but it's it's just declaration. It's right. it's Peter standing up after Pentecost and saying, "You killed Jesus, repent." Right. Rather than saying, "Hey, like Jesus is the Son of God, you should you should do this," which is all true stuff. But it's right. like it's not the idea of the Billy Graham crusade, like or like what has your get, life been missing, or like you know, yeah, all, exactly. all that. Yeah. The big paradigm shift that I had with the atonement not being enough in terms of the of the gospel was the idea, like you don't see the disciples preaching a gospel of decisionism. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's declaration. They also don't be like, become a Christian to avoid hell. You know, we go out on the streets all the time and a lot of conversations end up with like, well, why should I do this? Well, because you don't want to suffer God's wrath, which is all true. But like, that isn't what we see in scripture. We see repent and turn to King Jesus. There is the implication of like, you do this so that you don't get wiped out by the kingdom that's coming. But that's the big change to me is it's like, like obviously we're all Calvinistic guys, so we're, we're preaching God's sovereignty. We know that He's the one that has the agency in the, in the decisions, but it's like it's just proclamation of of what is true in the in the world, and we don't have to apologize for the truth, right? Like we don't have to go and win somebody over by a clever argument. It's just these are the facts of the scenario. Right. Deal with it. Yeah. Well, well and I think whether we mean to or not, even in our evangelism, some of the predominant Western view of God's sovereignty over salvation, or what others would say is not that, and it's about a person's, you know, free will choice. And it's interesting because, like, I've, I think I've done more street evangelism than you guys. Like, it's something that I did a lot yep. in the past. But it's like, when I think back on it, I'm almost trying to convince people that they have a sin problem, and it's like, well, they know they do. We all have a conscience, and we all know, ultimately, that he is real. But then we're still almost like, yeah, like, pleading with them to realize their sin. It's like, no, you know you're a sinner, Yes, we're still supposed to proclaim the law, and the law reveals our sin, but it's like, have we fallen into the problem of like, well, I'm trying to win you or trying to convince you. It's like, no, you know you're a sinner. You know that God is real, and all I, all we're really told to do is proclaim the fact that you need to submit to the king. Right. And it's like, so I just wonder if when you don't have that kingdom mindset, it's like, are we buying into the, well, no, I'm still trying to like win you almost, or I'm trying to convince you, and oh, is my argument for this good enough? I think you're right, and I think that where it gets kind of lost in the weeds, even for a really reformed guy to get caught in that conversation, it becomes you have this mindset like you're the citizen of heaven, like you're the weird one who's living in this 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 hostile world, and you have to find a way in this post-Christian world to like relate to that pagan who has his that darkened mind and you have to cut through these things and have this conversation in a way that you can get through the barrier of the hardness around his heart and you know what I mean there's this sort of strategic of like I mean how many workshops and stuff like that at like conferences do you see like you know sharing the gospel in a post-christian world and this whole idea of like cultural engagement with the gospel and stuff but I think this understanding of the arrival of the kingdom of God, it's here, you're ambassadors of the king, it changes that. I'm not there to have an argument. I'm not there to squabble with the peasants of a conquered kingdom. I'm there as an ambassador of the king telling them to lay down arms because when the king arrives, right, there's not going to be any resistance. And we've talked about this before, but like our king graciously is giving you terms of surrender so that if you will lay down arms and join his kingdom, not only will you not be swallowed up and destroyed, but you'll actually get an inheritance as if you've been on our side the whole time. It's a mind shift in terms of how you share the gospel. Hmm. There's this sort of confidence, and I don't want to—it's not arrogance, it's not— 
it's just there's this confidence of knowing like you're an ambassador to the king like you're on the king's side you're you're in the conquering kingdom you're not part of the conquered kingdom the first time that we went out because our street evangelism thing is only a couple months we've been doing it yeah we launched it a couple months yeah um and the first time i went out and i had a conversation with somebody it was post having this paradigm shift and it was such a fascinating thing. So I was like, I'm just going to lean into this. And I, I remember talking to a guy, I forget his name, but he was sitting at a, right behind or by a tree in Vic Park, downtown London. And we're supposed to like plead with people. There is a sense of pleading, yeah. right? We're, we're we implore like, them to be, be reconciled. reconciled. That's yeah. right. So it's like, there is still that sense. So it's like, I remember talking to him saying like, we're here, we love you. Like, yeah. we're not just going to be saying this in like a mean, harsh, aggressive way. It wasn't me trying to be like, oh man, like you really need to consider this. It was like, I'm here sent from the king of the universe who has conquered this world. You should be thankful that he loves you enough that he sent me <laughs> to tell right. you right. that you need to repent and you need to submit to him as king. I remember the look on his face was almost unlike anything I've seen in sharing the gospel where yeah. it was, whoa. There was a heaviness, yes. right? And, and it was yeah, one that I, I never experienced. Yeah, you were, you were right there. And yeah. it was just, it was wild because it, was, it wasn't me trying to win him or convince him. It was just, this is what it says. This is who the king is. Doesn't matter if you acknowledge him as king or not, irrelevant. Yeah. He is the king. Right. You must submit to him as king. And if you don't, you will perish. And it was just, it was wild to see that. Because again, I've I've been blessed to share the gospel hundreds of times over the last decade of being a Christian. I've never seen the look of almost fear right. in, yeah. in somebody's eyes when right. sharing the gospel. And it, yeah. it, it was it was profound. It's interesting you said something there that's interesting to me. Because we oftentimes get in the, into the argument that we don't want to have, which, which is trying to some, convince somebody of a reality that's just true. Preaching the gospel this way, it is declaration, proclamation of, some, of just reality. Because the reality is that this is Christ's world, that his kingdom is expanding. These are just facts in scripture, regardless if you believe our eschatology or not. These are just facts, right? Right. And so like the fact, like no Christian in orthodoxy doesn't admit that Christ is king. So us declaring these things is us actually being biblical to what the, the the story of scripture is. And I think that we see that throughout scripture with Peter specifically, but then Paul also has that moment where he he does get thrown out. Of, I can't remember. I think it's Acts 17 where he goes into the town and they and they toss him out and he comes back and was like, takes their worldview and then points out how Christ is just better than it. He does meet them. So we're not saying that there isn't a time to meet somebody with the, the argument that they have, but it doesn't change the realities of of what we're preaching, that Christ is king this is his world, and to live in it successfully, you need to repent and, and become the citizen, or else your kingdom gets destroyed. Right. Like, that's just reality. Well, and that's it. Like, you are part of a failed kingdom. So you got to You're pick- a failed state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> that's right. Like, the king who legally bought this world back with his blood, right? Who conquered it by putting to open shame the principalities who once had dominion over it, who is going to come back when the kingdom is completed and we can we can get to that later like yeah. right yeah, this is first corinthians 15 stuff right he comes back there he must reign until all those enemies are placed under his feet in victory he comes down defeats the last enemy death himself and then it says and then he gives the kingdom to god the father right it, it's a completed product when he does that and that's the paradigm shift is somebody sitting there being like well what like we all recognize christ as king we recognize these pre- that's the paradigm shift that that it, the message isn't just for you specifically, individually, like repent, you'll get your ticket into the heaven. We know that that's part of it. The thief on the cross had no idea of the of the scope of, right, of Jesus' of ministry, but was Jesus, saved and was part of the kingdom. Exactly, and he's living in glory. He understands it now. But the 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 point is, is that that the the message of the cross, the message of Christ, has so much more to do than just 
the the atonement. That's the thing that gets us entry into it, that makes me a citizen in his kingdom, that I can partake in the mission. The gospel has something to say about politics. It has something to say about how we live. It has something to say about every sphere of walk, and that's the paradigm shift. I would just say, because we're already 30 minutes in, I would say, let's do that episode next, right? Because it does have something to say about everything, and I think that's the next part of it. To finish off this episode, I alluded to one, you alluded to the other. So let's just read both so that people see we're just saying that we should share the gospel more like the apostles did. Like this is what they yes, did, right? In, so, in essence, yeah. so Acts chapter 4, you have Peter. Acts chapter 17, you have Paul. So in Acts chapter 4, it says, on the next day, this is uh, chapter 4, verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were with the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So you get this cosmic fact, right? Jesus is the cornerstone. You rejected him, but God has given him a name that's above every other name. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's fact. There's no altar call. There's no repeat after me prayer. There's just, these are the facts. This is the world as it is. Jesus Christ is the name. And then you you fast forward and you get Paul in Acts 17 in the middle of the area of Apophagus. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breadth and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we all live and, and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? So what's the message? All men everywhere must repent because God has fixed a day that he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And he showed that by raising Jesus from the dead. King is risen repent, right? So the gospel presentation of the apostles was far more declaration than it was invitation, and it's because they understood... Invitation was the word I was looking for. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, it's much more declaration than it is invitation. Where we'll end, I think, this episode is something that we, the three of us were actually just talking about that not that long ago. So this is all still kind of being worked out in, in all of us, but this idea that baptism is the sign of entrance into the kingdom of God. 
And we, we don't even need to get into mode or method or who or any of that kind of stuff, but this idea of baptism as a pledge of allegiance. And I think this was sort of a smaller paradigm shift, but it all comes in the other way. So I'll just read this statement. Baptism is, among other things, a public renouncement of one's former enslavement to Satan and the other spiritual rulers of this present darkness and a vow of fealty to the enthroned King Jesus. That's the statement. And where this comes from is when you read passages, and there are certain passages, Mark 16, 16 is one of them, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So there's this idea like when you read that, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. It puts baptism in there as part of the thing that saves you. And this is why there are denominated Lutheran baptism is believes in baptismal regeneration. And there's a reason intelligent men throughout faith history have struggled with this idea of is baptism necessary for salvation? And it's because of verses like that that are tough. So I'm just going to read a bit of a blog post here. This is from Non-Tenant. He says, this is actually an easy answer, although doing so challenges the emaciated evangelical understanding of sola fide. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> says, the Greek term pistis, which is usually translated as belief or faith, doesn't typically mean mere intellectual agreement. Rather, it often refers to allegiance or fealty toward a king. For example, and he gives some, some examples. So if pistis is as much about allegiance as it is about belief, Mark's identifying baptism with pistis suggests that being baptized is a paradigm case of showing allegiance, a token that stands in place of pistis itself. Although this sounds odd to our ears, it's a typical Jewish way of thinking in terms of holes rather than their parts, and in terms of combining rather than dividing or categorizing as we tend to. So in other words, our radical individualism of the day is what makes us slaves to this idea that the gospel just merely equals atonement, that there's this collective whole, this kingdom of God, and this kingdom of God is growing through individuals and through conquering, and so by faith, by pistis, by allegiance, people come into the kingdom. That just totally revolutionizes the idea of, we're not saying that individual regeneration isn't necessary. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that pledging allegiance to the conquering king is a necessary component. And so when we think about faith, and, and I mean, how many, you guys have all done like youth ministry and young adult ministry and stuff before. How many young people, they sit there and, and they're like, how do I know, right? They struggle with assurance. They struggle with, have I really had my heart regenerated? Am I really a new creation? Has God really predestined me? All that kind of stuff. And part of what they're asking there is like, how do I know that my faith is real? How do I know? Because faith is this abstract thing. Well, if we start understanding faith as a pledge of allegiance, it's like, where do your allegiances lie, right? And I think it makes so much more sense of many of the passages of Scripture that talk about faith as something that, right, Paul says, talking about, uh, I can't remember the name that he uses, he says, who has shipwrecked their faith. Well, how is that possible? Doesn't God bestow faith? Well, it's possible when you think about their allegiances. Are they showing their allegiance to the kingdom of light or to the kingdom of darkness? Yeah. Either you guys want to wrap wrap that up at all? I was going to say, let's leave it there and flesh out all that next episode. All right. I like leaving a teaser. Spoilers for next time. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. All right. That's where we're going next time. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about impact on how to engage the culture around us with these ideas. Love it. All right. Let's do it.